You're listening to Circus Stories, a circus history podcast. I'm your host, Callie B. A little bit about me. I have family in circus. My grandfather is a circus historian. Before that, he was a manager of Circus Vargas, which some of you may be familiar with. He also promoted a number of circuses where he photographed and would design their programs. So he was a promoter between 1950s up through the 1990s. But between the 70s and 80s, he was a manager of Circus Vargas, as I mentioned. And my parents traveled with the circus during this time, working concessions. So they have a lot of cool circus stories. I have other family members that were able to hop on the circus as well. My uncle worked concessions also. I have another uncle that had a sideshow act. My step-grandmother, for lack of a better term, was a trapeze artist. Anytime we would visit for holidays or just family gatherings, our family would sit around and just tell circus stories and I would never really get sick of them. I feel like there's so much cool, interesting and sad circus history that's out there that people don't know about but would love to hear. I'm here to tell you all about it. Along with me telling you these stories, my co-host will be enthusiastically listening along. So I will introduce my co-host, Mark. Hello, uh, my name is Mark Rodnauden. I am an actor, comedian, and most importantly, good friend of Callie's. Uh, I mean, Callie told me a little bit about some of the stories that she's going to tell you guys, and I was just blown away by this stuff. It's absolutely wild. And, you know, I'm a sucker for a good story, and I am a very expressive, emotional man, <laughs> so we thought it might be fun to have me on board with this. Yeah, I'm excited to hear all of Mark's colorful commentary as I tell all <laughs> these stories. And from time to time, you may hear our super producer, Catherine, chime in. Probably because she's mad at Mark. <laughs> so we're going to dive in to our first circus story. But before we do that, we're going to introduce our circus word of the day. And that word is the blues. So the blues, if you're walking into the circus and they take your ticket and uh, the usher says, oh, take your seat in the blues. They're referencing usually general admission. And the reason they're called the blues is usually because they're painted blue. <laughs> so, Telltale sign. But yeah, that's kind of just a slang for the general admission. I really thought that the seats were going to be so shitty that that's why they're called the blues. You got the blues? Because it's like, you're going to be, so, you're going to, you got the blues. I'm sorry, Buster, but they are cheaper. Yeah, they're either called blues or stringers because they're strung together. Because the seats are made out of string. Because they're, they're little tiny seats. Mm -hmm. So that's your circus lingo word of the day. And today we're going to talk about a circus icon. And who is more iconic than Mr. Hugh Jackman, the greatest, the greatest <laughs> showman himself? The greatest showman. We're going to talk about Hugh and all through the years. We're talking about both Wolverine, both Les Mis, and before all of that, when he did Oklahoma. <laughs> no, but we'll really be talking about um, Mr. P.T. Mm -hmm. Barnum. Oh, the Barnum. The P.T. Barnum. Ooh. He's the godfather of circus, but nobody calls him that. But I'm That's an impressive title. Yeah, I just gave I just gave it to him. The Godfather of Circus. And did you know this is I thought was so so interesting is allegedly he's uh, the one that coined the phrase "There's a sucker born every minute." 
Ooh, what a dastardly phrase. I know. That's very telling of, of just him, him in general. Man, I'm just picturing like Marlon Brando, but instead of a black suit, it's like a white and red striped suit like a circus tent <laughs> <laughs> what is he some what does he actually look like is he like a scrawny little no, man he's he just looks like a business he's got like does he have of, a squinty eye and a cigar and like a monkey on his shoulder he he's kind of balding i mean the photos that i've seen he's like balding early he doesn't look like hugh jackman i'll Uh-oh. tell you that right now he wishes man if, if in the movie about my life if hugh jackman would played me i would be so happy and so would my mom pt's like he's kind of round and uh not overweight but he has like a funky like round he looks like a banker is he like a babe ruth dude mm, not even that i don't know he's just he looks like a, a old-timey banker guy kind of like a businessman he's like balding horseshoe has like a fun like a roundy nose but kind of pointy so he's a gringotts goblin Yes, yeah, yes, without okay. the ears, that, exactly. Perfect. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that's that's what I was describing. That's I nailed it. Um, okay. That sounds like <laughs> the one who would make up circuses and say everyone's a sucker. That sounds perfect to me. The lore of this is, is better than I could have ever hoped. I'm biting off more than I can chew really in this episode, but whatever, it's fine. Bite! But hey, he's the guy. <laughs> P.T. Barnum, he's born July 5th, 1810, born Phineas Taylor Phineas Taylor Barnum. That's what the PT stands for. Whoa, what a ridiculous circus name. <laughs> Phineas? Phineas Taylor. Excellent. Couldn't be better. He's born in Bethel, Connecticut, born into a poor family. His father was named Philo Barnum, the mother Irene. Wow, great names, gotta say. I know, right? His dad was a struggling innkeeper, and they had a few businesses. Oh, he's an innkeeper and a tailor, but... Even though they had those both businesses, they weren't really making ends meet. No, you should have added cobbling to that. I know. Take your weary horse to our inn. We'll tail you (laughs) up your suit. We'll cobble your shoes. You get you back on the road. Right? Yeah, if only. Mm -hmm. If only. Give you a small meat pie for dinner and a tall beer, and you can get back on the road, handsome. (laughs) A meat pasty? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Barnum's maternal grandfather, Irene's dad, his name was Phineas Taylor. So obviously, that's where he got his name. This guy was a Whig, the opposing party to Andrew Jackson at the time. He's a legislator, landowner, justice of the peace. He worked with lottery tickets and stuff. So he had a big influence on P.T. at the time when he was younger. So P.T.'s father dies, 1826. Wait, sorry to interrupt. What was the lottery connection? Well, these are things that his grandfather did. And like, so P.T.'s a kid and he's watching him be successful. Did he, so he helped create the lottery or is he just good at playing it? No, no, no. He's a, he sells lottery tickets. So he's like. Oh, so he, okay. So he's already like learning from his elders that like, People are suckers. If you give them a flashy dream, they'll buy it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Okay. So his father dies. Uh, his dad's 48 years old when he passes away. Barnum's 15 years old. Ouch. Yeah. So this kind of leaves a financial burden on him. His, you know, has to care for his mom and his five brothers and sisters. Oh, geez. Five brothers and sisters. And from what I read, he kind of just was like, all right, well, I guess I got to do this. So he... He starts, you know, doing the small business thing at 15, but he didn't want to do any manual labor. So he kind of like follows his grandfather's footsteps (laughs) and was like doing the lottery thing. What a weird thing where you're like, all right, my father is dead. The burden of supporting my family (laughs) falls to me. I'll do anything except manual labor. The one thing that anyone, especially a 15 year old could just do and probably get paid for is like. No, 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 no. These hands are soft hands. We don't touch <laughs> shovels or dirt. We're going to grift, baby. 
But put on a beard and put on a suit and go downtown. Mm, That small bearded man is trying to sell me something, but his beard is handsome. What do you got? Snake oil? I'll buy it. (laughs) Yeah, but this worked for him. So he ended up owning a few businesses. He had a general store, a book auctioning trade, a state lottery network. What? All before he was 20 years old. How? How do you just He's own good a... with his words, man? And obviously this little suit that he bought and his, fun... so... <laughs> his fake mustache. <laughs> I feel like that's his secret is like a good disguise because he must have gone into the bank and said, excuse me, sir. I, an adult man, would like to purchase some property. And he would be like, well, I don't see any reason why you couldn't. I would ask you if you could support a loan, but you're clearly a full grown man. so You have a pocket watch and that's enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's so crazy. I wonder if things were really like very wild westy in the past and you could kind of just get shit done if you were confident i feel like it was like a handshake you're like i like the cut of your jib kind of thing i feel like that yeah. was it man people with good jibs went long ways man so 1829 he starts he starts a newspaper it's called the herald of freedom in bridgeport connecticut it's outspoken against religious oppression and he was kind of raised in a militant calvinism Households, so he was taking that stance. I forget what Calvinism is, so I'm just picturing a religion based on Calvin and Hobbes. I like that. I, that sounds like a paper I would definitely read. <laughs> It'd be interesting if nothing else. <laughs> so he's 19. He marries 21 year old Charity Hallett. Also a good name, right? And also he convinces an older woman to marry him. My God, this guy. Well, I mean, he's got great jib. <laughs> he does. I'm sure she could tell. So he's running the Herald, and at some point, he writes an editorial against local ch- churches. This leads to a libel suit against him and allegedly a prosecution that led to two months in jail. Oh, shit. Once out, he came out of jail, though, he was like a champion of the liberal movement. So everybody in the area was like, oh, yeah. you did it, though. You spoke for us. He's got that martyr stuff going on Totally. Now. So 1834, he sells his general store. He leaves the paper. Uh, his family remains in Bridgeport, but he would continue to commute back and forth from Connecticut to New York. That's where the the businesses is the city right yeah this is where he starts his first step into actual showmanship and it's pretty gross so he sells his he sells he may starts a business and a paper sells them because he has an a bigger idea or like he's like prisons changed me now i'm gonna circus i think exhibits were becoming more popular and so he was just like, mm, okay. I can sell anything. And clearly he can. Right. And I think the Herald was still going on, but he was just like, I'm going to go to New York and, t- and, oh, and see, I see what I can dip my toes in as far as exhibitions and all that stuff, because that doesn't get his hands dirty either. You know? And I mean, that's how you make the big money. You start something up, then you hire someone else to run it. And you're like, just give me the skim the top off to Papa. And then I'm going to go do more stuff. So it's 1835. He's 25 at this point. Okay. So he begins this first exhibition. His mm-hmm. first exhibition is exhibiting this blind and near paralyzed uh, African-American woman. It's pretty whack. So, uh, the exhibit is just like, she can't see. So her name is Joyce Heth. Okay. And this kind of points to just how fucked up everything was as far as like what was entertainment. Yep. So he finds Joyce Heth through an acquaintance, this promoter, R.W. Lindsay. Mm-hmm. This guy was already touring around with Joyce Heth in Philadelphia. Oh. And the story that Lindsay had made was that she is George Washington's 161-year-old nursemaid. But he wasn't getting much success doing this. So Well, no, because the show is just a blind woman. <laughs> like, she's very old and can't see. Right. And she's like wheelchair bound. 
Yeah, it's like even if you sell the fact that she was like new George Washington and she's a hundred something, people go and they're like, oh, that is a person. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> like Then the show's over. You know, someone that was like hit, that raised George Washington would draw a crowd, I guess, at that time, right? I suppose. But Lindsay wasn't really selling it, I guess. So <laughs> at this point in time, slavery was outlawed in New York. That's good. But this guy, R.W. Lindsay, found a loophole. Of course he did. Of course. But so he leased her to Barnum. Oh. So he leased Joyce for 12 months for $1,000. Yeah. So he's not selling her, but he's going to lease her. What state was this in? New York. But it was already illegal, but he was like, well, I'll lease you. So slavery was illegal. So was he like her caretaker? How does he have any jurisdiction over her? She was owned by this man in Kentucky. Okay. And then he's in Philadelphia. So that man did the same thing because he's like, I own her. I can lease her to R.W. Lindsay. So he did that. And then oh. Lindsay did this thing because he was a showman himself. Uh-huh. And he was like, cool, I'll I, I'll make up the story. And then he takes her on the road and he does shitty. Oh, So he's like, oh, well, maybe PT can do something. And Barnum's like, well, I'll try it. Because like, he's never done any kind of showmanship like this before. Yeah. But he sells everything else that he's ever tried to sell. So why not a person? It's all gross. It's real gross. And I guess because she's like blind and stuff, she can't. Because I was thinking like, okay, if you're in New York and you're in a free state, could you maybe try to just run away from this guy? But I'm sure she it's, can't. I mean, she's blind and paralyzed. She's paralyzed. She's in a wheelchair. She's the God. only thing she can move is her right arm. That's all the only thing she can move. That's enough. This poor woman. <laughs> Oh, my God. So Barnum does this deal. He continues with Lindsay's story that she's indeed George Washington's nursemaid. She's 161 years old, and Barnum charged 25 cents for admission to see her. Mm -hmm. He exhibits at Niblo's Garden. This is a New York theater on Broadway near Prince Street, and it usually would feature musical acts and vaudeville acts. So he was able to show her at this venue. Jeez. And what was it? Nibbler Theater? Another great name. Niblos. <laughs> yeah. Niblos. Still, it's just like a psycho clown name, Niblo. <laughs> yeah. But it was like a big venue. So he plasters advertisements all over New York. And the posters advertising her shows have these lines. And I'll read this to you that include, this is what they read. Joyce Heth is unquestionably the most astonishing and interesting curiosity in the world. She was the slave of Augustine Washington, the father of General Washington, and was the first person who put clothes on the unconscious infant who, in after days, led our heroic fathers on to glory, to victory, and freedom. To use her own language when speaking of the illustrious father of this country, she raised him. Joyce Heth was born in the year 1674 and has consequently now arrived at the astonishing age of 161 years. Like this poster is just bullshit, right? Yeah, but he's yeah. just like, come see her. Like, it's just crazy. She's old and she's been there and she's done that. Yeah, she raised the father of our country. So people are like, I'm going to go see her. You know, it's just insane. <laughs> The show's an hour, there is an intermission, and it's just an old woman giving a thumbs up, and then like a half thumbs up, and thumbs up again. So they travel for seven months with this exhibit. He'd work her for 10 to 12 hours a day. During the exhibit, she would tell stories about little George. She would sing a hymn like she did for little George. And skeptics obviously discounted the legitimacy of her age, but her body was so old and like they yeah. aided and like some people were like, oh, she does look so frail and she's blind and she's paralyzed. Mm -hmm. and but she can also talk and is like with it then. Yeah, because she's not 161 years old. <laughs> yeah. 
I guess so is the paralysis she can move her hand and I guess her facial features. Just her hand and she can okay. talk. Yeah. So she's right, so she can sell that. She's working so much it's insane. I mean, she better be getting a cut, even though I'm afraid to ask. So he's doing great financially. Of course. She's not paid at all. She's given room and board. Oh, good. Yeah. He's like, I'll push your wheelchair for you, and that's your cut. She's given no prospect of freedom in her future Mm -hmm. uh, and was eventually scheduled to return home in Kentucky, where she was still a slave there. And it's like when her 12-month lease was over. It's just so stupid. It's gross. So they traveled uh, to New York, to Rhode Island, Connecticut, to Boston. When he's in Boston, Barnum allegedly plants an anonymous story uh, that he submits to a Boston paper saying that she was actually a hoax. (gasps) He does this anonymously. What? Undercutting himself? Yeah. He says she's not actually a 161-year-old woman. He says she's an automaton. An automaton, sorry. Like a machine made of whalebone and leather. That is not what I thought he was going to accuse her of. I was like, oh, this is some next level strategy. Uh, She has to go away anyway. Might as well create a new hoax. But that she's a fucking robot made of whale bones. (laughs) Why whale bones? Use other bones. There's like fox bones, bones, deer bones. I don't know. Something you can actually get in the states they can get that then that's why there's no more i suppose so (laughs) because the fucking these guys what does the country have a lot of (laughs) Mm, leather and whales that makes the most sense how do the whale bones move inside her don't need to think about that (laughs) it's so he's basically doing this so that people will come and see her and be like she's a robot like what and it's like anonymous so he's just trying to raise interest more interest what and just like feed this ignorant fascination that that culture had about <laughs> just race as an exploitation and uh and seen rather as an oddity or curiosity it's so fucking dumb Ugh. anyway so uh that's just an example of how he would inflate these advertisements man and he really swung for the fences with it too like pulled no punches these shows earned barnum uh some fifteen hundred dollars a week and that's like in what 1835 like that's That's a million billion dollars in then yeah in today's money that is one billion dollars i think yeah creepers creepers and they can't even throw her a bone (laughs) haha whale bone not even so it really put him on the map he was disgusted extensively in the press Local genius builds robot out of bone. <laughs> right? Out of leather and bone. As doubt keeps being expressed about her age, though, by uh, people with brains, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. He announced that upon her death, she'll be publicly autopsied for these people that are naysayers. Of course. Because she doesn't get any shred of decency, this fucking poor woman. My God. No. And, and I mean, it's kind of foolproof because leather is just skin and bones people have them so you can really justify this (laughs) easy so she dies early february the following year in 1836 yep uh, in bethel connecticut at barnum's brother's house cause of death sadness and injustice i'm sure she's just fucking oh god yeah yeah um and barnum's like he states she'll be buried respectfully in his hometown of Bethel. Yeah, I'm sure that's where she wants to be buried. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fucking piece of shit. Anyways, so he says those, you know, he's going to bury her, but not before he falls through with the public autopsy. Of course. Give the people what they want. Yeah. He hosts a live autopsy of her body 
just a few days after her death, uh, February 25th. You got to wonder what that looks like in the past, too. Is it just the poor woman on a slab in the town square? Like, So it's in a New York City saloon. Oh, good. It's a bar. Sure, yeah. Because well, that sounds like fun. Why wouldn't you want a drink? I mean, you want a drink when you see a show. Sure. God, it's insane. So he gets the surgeon, uh, Dr. David L. Rogers, to perform this autopsy. Good name. Everyone in the past had good 1,500 names. 1,500 spectators wow. come to see this. And they each pay 50 cents to have him. That's double wa- the price. That's double the normal 25 cents. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's cleaning up. Yeah, he's really. Um, so they watch Rogers perform this autopsy. And thank God the autopsy reveals that Joyce Heth was likely half her alleged age. She was probably 79 years old, which was real, right? <laughs> yeah. Still pretty good for that time. Thankfully, the surgeon isn't, he's not lying to everybody. So. Yeah. I'm surprised that PT didn't like hand him like, you know, a buck or two and be like, hey, just uh, these are these bones are strangely big. How did that happen? <laughs> what? Is there a bucket of krill in her stomach? How could this be? It just falls out. Oh, no. Oh, my God. That's so horrible. Because this autopsy reveals that her age is 79 years old, probably her actual age, this prompts Barnum to declare that her death had been a hoax and that he had to, to back up his exhibition story, he he said that he'd given the surgeon a different body. What? And that Heth was actually alive and well. Oh, my and goodness. And she'd return one day to the spotlight. And this all obviously gave Barnum national attention and really launching his career as a showman. That, that's Okay, that is nuts to me that the fact that he's like, Oh, this was the wrong person. The right person is not only still alive, but the one you've all been seeing has been a lie and a hoax. (laughs) Give me more money, please, you dumbos. And they're like, yes, PT, anything for you, daddy. And then they give him more money. What? I thought everyone would be like, that's ridiculous. I want my 25 back. But no, they just want more. They love it. So it's really sad. This whole story about her is so sad. And I would love to... Just explore a story on her later. This guy has accomplished ridiculous shit at like crazy ages. And people just seem to like let him. They're just like, sure, keep lying to us. We will keep paying you. Yeah. Who's fact checking? No one. I feel like, I guess if you just have charisma, you can do anything. Yeah. If you can just lie well, you're fine. Yeah, which is partially true now. <laughs> it is true now, but you obviously have a lot. I feel like there's more like red tapey kind of stuff to go sure. through. Sure. But I, I guess in the past, just like if you were a good liar. I mean, look, this guy didn't even have to get his hands dirty. Literally. No. To Mm-mm. get where he is. Not not one. That's crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. Uh, so this puts him on the map. And like you said, people are just like, I'll take what you give me. Anything you give me. I love it. I want it. Yeah. So 1841 rolls around. Can we get a whale that's made an automaton (laughs) by human bones? Whatever you got, we'll take it. Uh, So 1841, he purchases the Shutters Museum, which was a... A natural history museum. Of shutters. Of of shutters. Of just a bunch of blinds. Look at these old windows throughout the years. These ones have pulleys. And people be like, yes, 75 (laughs) cents even. The the Shutters Museum was a family name, the Shutters. Oh. Uh, And it was a natural history museum on the corner of Broadway and Anne. Uh, And it was an established city museum. But when the building was taken over by the man Shutter's heirs, when he passed away, they just kind of let it go. Mm. So it had gone bankrupt. So Barnum quickly scooped up this building for less than half of its appraised value with the help of a financial backer. And the reason he was able to do this is he quickly purchased it the day after the initial buyers missed their first payment. So he was kind of like ready. He was like ready to pounce. He watched it. He was 
a hawk of it. This building was big though. It's a five-story building Ooh. on the corner, like, you know, Manhattan and mm -hmm. Broadway. I mean, that's prime real estate. And it, it came with their, their natural history collection still that was left over from the museum. So he aptly renamed it Barnum's American Museum. Mm -hmm. And it was pretty impressive. The outside of the building was just one big advertisement and just inflated advertising, obviously. Yeah. And then each floor was an attraction. So one floor was a zoo. Ooh. One was a, ma a wax museum. One was like a theater. One was a lecture hall. And then there was the history museum that was left over and then a freak show. I mean, he's clearly a monster, but that does sound fun. Yeah, it does sound like a party time, but he does sound... A five-story, like, every level is a new fun thing? I'm in. I mean, that bar downtown, what's it What's it called? Uh, the, the Clifton's. That one's fun because every floor is a different thing. Barnum had that idea a million years ago. Yeah, and it, the, visually, at least from the outside, it looks very similar to how Clifton's is. It's like this big, you know, beautiful building... So he opens this officially January 1st, 1842. And according to historians, the zoo contained amazing exhibits of live animals. There's lions. There's whales in this aquarium. The plot thickens. It all, it's all coming together. <laughs> More whale talk. I, I wonder if, do we know if the whales were real or alleged? Because whales are so big. And in the past, how the F do you get a whale into a building? <laughs> like it's one thing to get it to a zoo and put it in a big tub but inside like you know people had to air, like crane lift pianos into high apartments and this fucker got a whale in he was a first aquarium in the u.s like oh my goodness he's very he's very innovative and he's a very a man of first i will say that clearly and he's still probably not even 30 he's uh yeah like 32 it's kind of insane yeah, um, so, but they're beluga whales. They're smaller, but still. Beluga sounds like a big word, though, so I'm still picturing a large whale. Big beluga whales. Big beluga <laughs> whale. That also sounds like a good, like, I don't know, a restaurant or something. Come on down to Big Beluga's. We got the best flapjacks in town. You're going to get stuffed at Big Beluga's. It's basically just Denny's, but Big Beluga's is a way better name than Denny's. Denny's is okay as a name, but... Endless flapjacks at Big Beluga's. <laughs> yeah, flapjacks stacked as high as Beluga himself. And Beluga is, like, advertised as an 100-foot man. For the head of a whale? <laughs> yes. yes, of course. Very Bojack Horseman kind of thing, just, like, whale head but he has a suit on <laughs> humanoid body i love it lots of flapjacks so the museum began as a th theatrical and exhibit based venue but and he described it as informative entertainment right because it's like museum <laughs> you know but it's like educational you could really learn something here <laughs> watch this clown eat a pie you can see how a clown can eat a pie but so he has this informative entertainment the animals, the you know, the aquarium, mm -hmm. the zoo. The animals teach you stuff. They read children's stories. Yeah, they read kids' books in the morning. Which, I gotta say, that would be the cutest thing to ever happen in a zoo. Uh, I would pay 50 cents for that. Oh, yeah. Uh, so then he quickly started to add more performative acts, magicians, gymnasts, and then snake charmers. That's the real good stuff. I know, right? Then he started adding what was considered more offbeat. Uh -oh. And that's when he started to introduce the human freaks and the freak relics. Freak relic? Right. What's well, a freak relic? And Is that like a cursed object? You touch it, you become a freak? It's very much like the Santa Claus curse? Kind of. It's an, I knew you would ask. So <laughs> okay. an example... Uh, a very popular freak relic was this one item called Fiji, 
the mummified mermaid and it's actually very famous Ooh. i guess as far as freak relics go mm -hmm. so uh the item was like a mummified body of a monkey nice uh and the tail of a fish boy <gasps> fish boy yeah so it was like a fish boy body and then like a monkey person on the front so you had me with mummified monkey because yeah that makes sense they mummify a monkey you sell it as a person easy money fish boy however what is what what is that <laughs> <laughs> Why is is it not just a fish that they just like sewed the bottom on and taxidermy? Well, it? if he's and there's a photo that I sent Catherine, but it's like a it's like a mermaid tail, but it's uh -huh. like short. It's like three feet long. So it's like a trout. But it looks like a mermaid tail. So it's like you know an adolescent merman, if you will. <laughs> I, I it's just so funny to me that they chose to write fish boy instead of just we cut a head off a fish and sewed it to a monkey's yeah. butt. <laughs> I mean, I'd still want to see it. There's no telling. There, that's the truth. There's no telling. The secrets are buried <laughs> in the past. We're just going to have to go with it. It's real. It's real, Mark. It's real. In the past, there were fish boys. There were no mermaids, but there were fish boys. Yeah, it was obviously not real. But, uh, you know, he, he presented it as though it was. Of course. Um, but it was a fabrication. And the item was, was leased to Barnum from a friend and a fellow museum owner. What weirdo fucking contacts he has. Yeah, like, it was a friend. His friend Moses Kimball. He's got a... He's got a cruel slave owner on one telephone call. And on the other telephone call, he's like, hey, you know that mermaid bottom you got in stock? Ship it to NYC, baby. It's time for the big time. God, where does he find these people? So uh, he just, Barnum justifies these hoaxes by saying that they're advertisements to draw attention to the museum. He says, I don't believe in duping the public, he said, but, <laughs> but I believe in first attracting and then pleasing mm. them. Very good, very good. So you walk into, you know, the freak and freak show and freak relic part, right? So you see Fiji the mermaid, and then he follows Fiji with some live people. It seems like a letdown after Fiji. But it wasn't. Ooh. Then you walk in, and you, he introduces General Tom Thumb, dubbed the smallest person that ever walked alone. <laughs> I am just picturing a thumb with a general outfit on it and googly eyes underneath like a, a blanket or something just sticking a thumb at the smallest general to ever live. You would have the best. I mean, your freak show would be fun as shit. I mean, it would be all thumbs. So Tom Thumb's real name was Charles Stratton. <laughs> I wish it was Charles Thumb. Um, so Charles Stratton, he was indeed a little person. Mm -hmm. But uh, when he first started with Barnum, Stratton was only four years old. And he was stated to be 11. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he was young and small. So, But with, with heavy coaching from Barnum and natural talent, the boy was taught to imitate all these characters, like from Hercules to Napoleon. So depending on whatever, you know, he would just imitate these people. So you just put on like an impressionist show pretty much. Okay. Right, right. Yeah. So he was drinking wine by age five. He was smoking cigars by age seven. Oh no. All for public amusement. You're going to kill this kid PT. So we'll definitely revisit Tom Thumb because he's pretty famous um, in another episode. Pretty famous. Great name. Natural performer. Another popular exhibit of humans, unfortunately. That's so weird to say. Yep. 
were uh, these two brothers, Chang and Ang Bunker. Mm -hmm. They were conjoined twins. Classic. They were the first introduction of like Siamese twins. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were very, very famous. The Siamese would become synonymous with conjoined twins in general, which is weird. They're born of Chinese ancestry. They're brought to the U.S. in 1829 at the age of 18. And they became super successful later on in their career because they kind of were, they knew what they had, you know? Yeah. And they also married two sisters, which I thought was very interesting. That is, that is interesting. <laughs> that was my fun fact for that. Do we know how they're conjoined? Do they have like, is it two heads and it's like joined at the shoulder? They are conjoined. They share a kidney. So it's like right down the middle. Yeah. Oh, wow. Do they both have separate arms or is it like a left or right? They share, uh, they have one arm, one arm. Two heads, you know, and they, so they're joined like right down to the shoulders. Okay. In the middle, but they both have separate. Um, they they have four forearms, I believe. Yeah. Oh wow. And they were really pressured to like have an operation and separate and stuff. But later, after they passed away, mm-hmm. doctors realized that like that would have to- that would have killed them. Really. For sure. Yeah, you got to assume that like I feel like that kind of stuff it would be tricky even now, especially if you share organs. But like for them to even attempt it in what like eighteen like what was eighteen like forty? Yeah, eighteen forty-two. Yeah, like that's good for them for being like fuck you guys. We're making it work right now. We're married to two sisters. We're a star in a show. We don't need your cut down the middle. We're good. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, because they shared. I know they shared a kidney, and I'm. I'm sure there was like some spinal situation, you know. And a deep bond. <laughs> Clearly. Most important of all, you can't get rid of that. Not with scissors or anything. Oh my gosh. Not with scissors or sisters. <laughs> Bada bing. So other amazing exhibits in there. Like I said, uh, there's beluga whales, giants. Giants? Yeah. Really quick. How high? We're talking eight feet? Um, I. You know what? I'll have to look and see. I know. Bigger? No, probably like a seven some tree sized. I would advertise them as tree sized because then you really let the people's imagination run away when they see them. You're like, some trees are small. <laughs> I, you can't be mad at me. Some trees are small. See, you're thinking like Barnum's thinking. See, I talked to you for 30 minutes. He's already changed. Oh, you. yeah. Look what he's done to me. So at its peak, the museum was open 15 hours a day and as many as 15,000 vid- visitors a day. Whoa. Each paying what? What was it like 50 cents a pop? So I'll tell you. Okay. 38 million customers paid 25 cents admission to visit the museum between 1841 and 1865. Whoa. So to put that in perspective, the total population of the U.S. in 1860 was under 32 million. Jeez. So more than, you know, the population at 1860 had traveled through those doors. And he had it for like, what, that was like 24 years? Yeah. So and he he continued to have it, but he has some bad luck and we'll talk about that. So Ooh. he obviously has, you know, his secret weapon is his talent and attractions, but also in his advertising. Yeah. He's quoted to say he's not above exploiting his patron's ignorance <laughs> from time to time. That's obvious, right? I mean, at least he's honest. <laughs> he's like, you're a dumb dumb. So if you're dumb, then you're dumb. Sorry. Like, <laughs> if you're dumb, I love you. Get in here, you sweet mook. <laughs> Give me that wallet. Give me that 25 cents and come back tomorrow because we're going to have new bullshit. So he made a, a huge profit and he obviously reaped the rewards in uh, the press. To keep public interest or to just add mystery, he would often publish these articles, usually anonymous in, in newspapers, claiming that the, his exhibits were fake. <laughs> This kept this constant interest in keeping the crowds continuous. So that was kind of his move that he continued with. 
Man, that is kind of like a, a a thing I wouldn't think would work, but I guess in the past when there's the only way that you can tell for yourself if it's real or not is to go see it. So right. that's that's kind of an ingenious uh, trickery on his part. Also, love how often you could do an anonymous message in the past. That's great. You really can't trace Who it. Who keeps sending these anonymous messages? Seriously. I would love if he just made up fun names every time. Oh, man. That would be great. Uh, where it was like C.P. Schmarnum. C.P. <laughs> <C>. Tarnum. D.D. <Yeah. laughs> D. Darnum. Wee <laughs> Wee Harnum. Pee Wee Herman. Pee <laughs> Wee Herman. And people keep coming back, even though they knew the stuff was how it was. Like they, he had yeah. so many return visitors, they didn't care. So I mean, when it was good, it was good. Yeah. So I thought this was an interesting like sidebar to his career. Is he dipped his toes in like this? He had a brief stint as like a music manager. Oh. So <laughs> he took. Yeah, it's like so interesting these like side hustles that he tried, or just yeah. in general. I think he just wanted to make money. And he could advertise anything. Absolutely. It's kind and, of and crazy. as like a music manager, it's like perfect for him. All he has to do is be right. like, hey, you with the talent. I'm good at exploiting people with talent. You want in? 100%. And they're like, please, right. anything. I'm an artist who's dying to do this. Right. So he finds this Swedish singer, Jenny Lind. And he knows she's known as the Swedish Nightingale. Mm. So he seeks her out uh, during his, his European tour with Tom Thun. They're They're touring him and Tom Thumb. Crushing the world with Tom Thumb. When her career is at its height in Europe, he approaches her and asks her to sing in America $1,000 a night for 150 nights. All expenses paid by him. Whoa. Uh, Lynn demands the fee in advance. Good for her. Yeah, I know, right? He's, Get that money. Yeah, and so he's like, okay. So he borrows heavily on his mansion and his museum to raise that money to pay her. But he's still short on funds, so he persuades a Philadelphia minister that she would be a good influence on American morals because she actually was an advocate with charity and philanthropy. So this guy lends him the, the extra dough. So she's very wholesome. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Okay. The contract also gives Lynn the option to withdraw from the tour after 60 performances, paying Barnum $25,000 if she did pull out. So Lind and her small company sails to um, America in September of 1850, and the tour begins, allowing for Barnum to recoup his investment almost four times. Jesus. And after New York, the company toured the East Coast with continued success and later went through the southern states and then Cuba. So by early 1851, Lind had become uncomfortable with how Barnum's so relentless with his marketing tactics. Because she's... You know, she kind of has some morals about her. Well, yeah, she's like a good person who gives a shit. Right, right. So she invokes her contractual right to sever the ties with him. Yeah, there you go. So they part amicably. She continues for her, her the tour for nearly a year under her own management. So in all, she gave ninety three concerts. Wow, she cut out after the, for the last seven. You got to respect that because clearly she could have done it for like a good amount of money, but she was like. This guy sucks. I hate how he's treating this whole situation. I'm out. I don't need you. That's a real artist. God bless. What was her name? She's wonderful. Jenny Jenny Lynn. Jenny Lynn. L- Lind. L I N D. Like the like the truffle. Uh yeah, like the chocolate. Mm. Oh, actually, Lind. That's a, those have a T. So damn it. So she earned about three hundred fifty thousand, but Barnum netted about five hundred thousand, which was like equivalent to like. 15 million now. Oof, which, and not to say that he's not doing any work because he is like marketing her super heavily, but it's crazy to me that he is making that much more than her when she's the talent. Like, 
People are coming oh, to yeah. see her, not his ass. He's like, look at her. She's great. <laughs> look at her. She's great. Give me uh, 200000 more, please. So he has this newfound wealth. He begins investing. Um, and where he invests it is he wants to develop Eastport, East Bridgeport, Connecticut, because that's kind of where. <laughs> I thought you were going to say eSports. I was like, wow, <laughs> ahead of his time. <laughs> He's like, you know what I think is good? The internet. <laughs> <laughs> the internet's going to be big. So he wants to develop East Bridgeport. That's kind of where he grew up. Mm-hmm. It's near and dear to his heart. So. One investment that was a, a substantial loan was to the Jerome Clock Company and in an effort to help it expand with the new industrial area, moving it to, I think, New York. But the company went bankrupt in 1856. And it basically... Jerome Clock did? Yeah. And it took his wealth with it, all of his investments. Oh. So this started four years of litigation and kind of public humiliation for PT because he was kind of going through all this litigation. He was in the news. I mean, he deserves a little bit. Yeah. He deserves a little bit so, of that. And he wasn't really... He didn't like... Being vulnerable in the press. Well, of course he did. I mean, that's not his jam. I'm sure he can spin this, though. So who comes to the rescue? The mummified mermaid. (laughs) No, Tom Thumb, who's still touring. Good old Tom Thumb. They've known each other since Tom was four, you know? So they're actually really good friends. Yeah. He's probably like a father figure, kind of him. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly. So he offers to team up again, and he's still touring on his own. So the, uh, the two undertake another European tour. And this is all still while he's got, like, the New York uh, thing going? Well, so the museum is still there, but because he had to put it up for Jenny Lynn to pay her in advance, I think it was still up for collateral. Oh, I see. Because they go on tour, uh, Barnum's managing and advertising for Tom Thumb, and then he also starts a lecture tour, mostly as a temperance speaker, because he was liberal in a sense. So by 1860, he emerges from his debt, uh, he builds a mansion, which he calls Lindencroft, kind of like, I don't know if that's like a nod to her. Yeah. I mean, it was made on her <laughs> from all of her talent. So, yeah. And then he resumes ownership of his museum. So, because um, that's noted. So I'm, I'm assuming that it was kind of up in collateral. That's crazy. He's in financial trouble, gets out of it with so much money that he can not only reopen his circus, but... Build a mansion. What's crazy is he makes so much money off of this woman. Then he invests it, loses it, and then he makes it again after he tours with this guy. It's unbelievable. It's crazy. He just constantly bounces back. It's insane. I mean, he. I can't tell how much of this is just ambition or dumb luck or like just like street smarts or it's probably all of it. But it is wild what he accomplished. It's crazy. We touched on him being like the the first to have an aquarium and it's written in 1862 that he officially has the one of the floors of the museum as a whole aquarium that still blows my mind that he got a fucking whale in a building in new york city in 1840 well there's two two yeah two belugs two belugs sheepers creepers so he continues to expand on this museum he adds a giantess and a swan <laughs> the fact that those are equal <laughs> it's like we have a giant woman and a big duck no no and a swan oh and a swan i thought you said and a swan and i was just like those two i mean maybe they're best friends i would love to see a giant hang out with a swan he also and uh, adds um small man commodore nut commodore nut and general yeah Tom. so this is i'm going to tell you about this barnum didn't just provide these curiosities Mm -hmm. and have people walk through he really liked to add drama so you have tom thumb who's on the show in the museum commodore nutt who is also a small person Mm -hmm. and then lavinia warren who's also a small person okay commodore nutt was actually in love with lavinia warren (gasps) 
and in real life or in the drama in real life and so okay and i i barnum kind of played up on this and he has tom and lavinia tom thumb and lavinia get married and he has commodore nut oh. be the best man in their wedding oh my god so he's making a soap opera yeah and he like has oh this like this whole display and this is whole this thing and commodore nut just uh, from then on just really just resented tom thumb and not and not PT and not Barnum, yeah. Because I think oh that God. they be, they went through these motions, mm-hmm. and then Tom Thumb and Lavinia were married, and they just were married. It's just insane. He made a reality TV show. Yeah, he made a reality TV show. It's that crazy. Is, uh, and it's of course, nuts. he gets away with it. The producers always get away. With it's it. they do. The producers do always get away with it. They do. So his fame grows and grows. He's a household name. His status allows him to visit the president, Abraham Lincoln, <gasps> with, with some of his performers. Wow. Uh, one who, Tom Thumb, gets, gets to go. During the Civil War, his museum draws large audiences seeking diversion from the conflict, some distraction. Sure. He's a clear union sympathizer. Uh, and this is kind of shown through his museum uh, attractions. He has, he adds pro-unionist shows, lectures, and dramas he hires this woman, Pauline Cushman, in 1864, and she's an actress who served as a spy for the Union. And she lectures about her thrilling adventures behind Confederate lines. Ooh. I mean, that is a soap opera I want to watch. I want to watch it, too. Sounds great. So his clear political stance is portrayed through his new exhibits added through the museum. Yeah. And it's believed to be a cause for Confederate. Confederate sympathizers starting a fire in 1864 in the museum. Now, it didn't burn down the whole museum, but that following year, July 1865, the Barnum Museum did catch fire and burn totally to the ground. Oh, shit. And it's one of, it's said to be at the time one of the most spectacular fires New York has ever seen. I'm suspicious about two things. One, he's a union sympathizer, and yet he basically owned a slave, or at least one. I mean, right? So that's one thing. And second, this is the kind of motherfucker who would definitely burn down his own place, collect the insurance, and then, like, like showboat it as, like, the most in- the creative, strange place in the world, burned down. Uh, we're st- starting it up again, and only a few people can... Like, there's definitely an angle where he could have done this. There's a... Uh, um, yeah, that, I agree with that statement, to a point, yes. Oh, so the fire's origin's unknown. But again, some suspect that Confederate Confederate supporters were coming to finish the job, but that's not not at all ever confirmed. Was that uh, was that brought up by an anonymous tip to the local paper? Probably. Schmeepy Smarnum. Schmeepy Smarnum has the inside word on the Confederacy. Like, sounds legitimate. <laughs> I know that guy, and he tells the truth. Yeah, Schmeepy, very honest man. He writes to us all the time, and I know him. He has a handsome mustache. <laughs> Uh, the New York Times uh, re- reportedly said that it was due to a defection furnace. Sure, why not? There were no wires back then, so it had to be just the... You know the big furnace in the basement we've been meaning to get rid of? Well, someone left it open. <laughs> we never put that fire yeah. up. <laughs> well, we know, you know, hot air goes up, and we thought we'd just leave it open, heat up the whole place in the winter. Turns out, fire catches. Uh, so no human lives are lost, That's but good. the animals were not so lucky. Oh, God, the whales! <laughs> so... Animals in the museum. But they had water. I don't know. Maybe. So listen. So animals are seen jumping out of from the blazing five-story building only to be shot if they make it out. What? So what? You, what? Many of the animals unable to escape were burned to death in their enclosures, including the two beluga whales. No. 
who boil to death in their tanks. Oh God, that's so bad. Because I was just gonna say, like, maybe because the water, they they could they could wait it out. No, baby. No. Also, I'm picturing like what are dolphins and fish jumping out the windows to safety, and people are like, "Don't let them hit the ground." And like, what? So this it was allegedly during this fire that a fireman. His name was Johnny Denman. Great fireman name. Right, Johnny. Fireman Johnny. Johnny, Johnny Denman. He killed an escaped tiger with his axe before rushing into the burning building to carry out the 400-pound woman on his shoulders. What a goddamn <laughs> hero. Oh, my God. You go, you're go. you a fireman. You're like, oh, God, that, bur- that building's on fire. This is a scary moment, but I'm a brave fireman. You go to the door, and there's a tiger in your way, and you say, there's a woman behind you, tiger. Step aside, and the tiger says, no, sir. You face me. I am death incarnate. And the fireman says, all right. And he chops through the tiger, survives that burning building, survives that, carries a 500-pound woman through the... You got... The air is thin in a burning building, and 500 pounds is a lot. (laughs) That's some crazy hero bullshit. He should be in the paper. Well, he was. Johnny Denman. He clearly was in the paper. (laughs) Someone made that choice. Great American name, Johnny Denman, (laughs) local hero. So after all this, he's... Barnum's not discouraged. He keeps going. Of course not. He because because insurance fraud. Because he started again insurance <laughs> fraud. Because because Mark suspects insurance fraud. Oh, it's gotta so, be. So he promptly opens a new museum just up the street from his previous museum. Great. And he makes this switch to the second museum super quick. And he says, Of course he does. He had backup animals. He didn't want to leave his employees high and dry. That's what he says. Or you know, it's noted. That that's he what says, he says. Yeah, that's yeah, his like alleged, front, right, allegedly. folksy way. Sure. So he we res- gotta get those tigers back to work, <laughs> right? They need to feed their babies. They do. Um, <laughs> Tiger milk is so expensive these days. He's reestablished within a year or so. So he's always trying to keep abreast of the new technology. So he introduces the latest, the new uh, heating mechanism at the time. Boilers is are in this new museum. Ah. But unfortunately for Barnum, these were a little too unpredictable and they were uh, lacking oh, no. lacking <laughs> adequate testing. So in March wow. 1868, uh, one of those boilers explodes just after midnight and surprise, a fire breaks out in this museum. Of course it so does. So it takes firefighters over an hour to arrive. Jesus. The fire department's super late and they blame the delay on the depth of snow at the time during their travel and also the previous alarms of the fires in the past. Oh my God. <laughs> So they're probably just like, another fire? Really, Barnum? Like, come on. <laughs> it's like, sounds like a hoax. Well, let's chill for an hour. The chilies just came out of the yeah. oven. So the firefighters went to the sor- like to source the water from the hydrants once they got there. And they realized it was so cold, the water was frozen once they put their hoses in. Oh, yeah, I guess that would happen. Once the water trucks get there, started to get things in working order, wind had picked up, and basically was just fanning the flames. Oh, geez. So... It was just undeniable that this fire, this fire was just too big, and no one was really going to make it out. So I'm going to read you this crazy part of a, an article from Frank Leslie, who had a paper. God, these names are A plus. Frank Leslie, of course he's a journalist. Yeah, well, he had something, a paper called the Les- Leslie's Weekly. It was an illustrated newspaper. Man, I'm just picturing like Fraser Crane, but just in the 1800s. <laughs> right. 
Yes. Because uh, Frazier's name is, he basically could be called Leslie. It would be the same character. It would work just as well. This is uh, uh, Frank Leslie's March 21st, 1868 article about the, f- uh, the fire. So, a sudden cry of wonder was raised at the appearance at one of the windows on Broadway of some animal too severely burned to be recognized. Ooh. With a brief survey of the situation beneath the beast, which proved to be one of the Bengal tigers, gave a tremendous bound. The crowd separated frantically as the tortured creature landed in the middle of the street. For an instant, the monster stood panting and gazing wildly around, and then, turning suddenly, started on a canter down Broadway. A stream of water turned on him from a steam engine, which brought him to bay, when a policeman stepped up and with several shots dispatched him. During the efforts to save the animal, the giraffe tumbled down near the doorway and put a sudden check to to further aggress. A number of smaller animals were passed from hand to hand, and finally a rope was attached to the giraffe's neck, and he was slowly raised up. The huge creature, frantic by the heat and the manner in which he was handled, refused to move. Although the flames had burst through the partition and the animal's body commenced to burn, more men laid hold of the rope and, after a severe struggle, succeeded in hauling the beast into the street. Several of the human monstrosities of the museum occupied apartments on an upper floor of the building, and a posse of policemen forced open the doors and rushed into the rooms to save the inmates from destruction. The Circassian girl, whose lustrous eyes and beautiful hair have made her one of the museum's favorites, was carried from the room by a stalwart gentleman and was immediately followed by a procession of four bearing upon their shoulders the fat boy. Miss Swan, the giantess... Miss Powers, the fat woman, the hairy little Esau, and the albino children were likewise rescued by a sympathetic company, and the entire party were conducted to the parlors of the Anson House. Yikes! <laughs> I I mean, there's a lot of crazy things in that article. I mean, seeing a flaming tiger jump out of a window and look at you while you're on the street. Horrifying, crazy, terrible, uh, beautiful image. Um, but what one of the crazy things they decided to save a giraffe, they would hang it while it was on fire. They're like, grab it by the neck. There's so much real estate. It's like, are you kidding me? I'm just blown away that he has a giraffe like that. I'm like, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Doors aren't that big. How did they get it in? That giraffe, I don't I don't know how big a giraffe is, but I'm thinking I've like... I've seen them in the movies. Between 9 and 15 feet. <laughs> There's no way to know for sure what they are. They're bigger than trees. I know that. They're bigger than trees. That is true. I know that much. Catherine is looking with... Uh, she does not believe my, my giraffe, I think. She, she, yeah, she says no. It could be very off, but until we Google it, there's no way to know I'm wrong. So the next day, you could pass by the museum that was burned and crumbling, and it was just encased in ice. And I, I have a, a fo- there's a photo of it um, that you can see. It's just, it's like icicles and just burned. It's just crazy. Whoa! Because they hosed it down with water, but it's, so it's like frozen. That's insane. Burned inside, frozen outside. It's crazy. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't charge for that. I mean, that's its own attraction. That's like some hell frozen over shit. I'm surprised he wasn't standing out with a hat. Yeah, seriously. Give me 25 cents. <laughs> Give me 25 cents. Look at this cool bullshit. People are like like, I could just watch for free. He's like, no, 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 no. This belongs to me. Money, please. And they're like, all right, here you go. I do want to look. And I don't want any trouble. <laughs> I do have eyes. Here's the quarter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is my good person obligation. I got to give you the money. That's your uh, burnt down husk. Sure. Yeah. You, you earned that quarter. 
I'm sure you are, are really <laughs> devastated by the loss. And he's just twirling his curly mustache like, yes, double insurance fraud in the same year. What a ridiculous man. So he chooses to focus on straight performance right at this point. Sands the animals. So he briefly operates on a location on uh, uh, on 14th Street in Manhattan, which consequently eventually also catches fire due to a boiler malfunction. So at this point, Barnum's like, all right, I'm done. I'm going to take a break. <laughs> yeah. So that's a third building burns mm-hmm. up. And yeah. What is this idiot doing? <laughs> like, this has got to be intentional. Three in a row? That doesn't just happen. I mean, and also boilers. I mean, I don't know. Just pick a different... I don't different... know how boilers work. Neither do I, but clearly they don't. <laughs> yeah. That's a good... That's a great answer. At least not back then. I need to check on the boiler in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 1870 rolls around, and... As it does. We are introduced in our story mm-hmm. to Dan Costello, William Cameron Coop, and these two both have a uh, background in circus. Cameron Coop most recently was with the Yankee Robertson Circus, and he was with them from 66 to 69, and he gains the rights to their sideshow. Okay. He's gaining circus. He partners up with Costello in 1869. Another good name. And they start their own circus in Wisconsin. So they have this sideshow from Yankee Robinson. They start adding performers onto their main show, and they start traveling by boat near and around the Great Lakes. And But they still feel stunted. They knew they could span more territory and they have the business savvy to do this, but they need extra capital and that extra umph. So all signs point to Barnum. What a better candidate to ask. This guy is the showman Mm -hmm. himself. So they approach him and ask if he'd invest and partner up with their circus. And Barnum's kind of like, okay, you know. I don't got anything going on right now. He's like, you don't have a building, do you? Good. All right. I'm in. So uh, they knew the draw of his name would be a big advantage. So would his money and his connections. This is all a great opportunity for both of them. Barnum's anxious to get back on the road, do what he does, sell tickets, sell whatever. So they partner up and they decide to uh, collaborate and take their show on tour. Because Barnum still has, you know, some circus assets, if you will, which are performers. What survive? Oh, yeah. Those people did get carried out, right? Yeah. There's some people, you know, there's some assets then. And essentially, he probably still has contracts or at least verbal contracts at this point. Not written ones, because I... Oh, yeah, he's leasing all these people. Yeah, or at least he probably has, like, oral contracts with them, because I don't think that they were... (laughs) There's a clause in his whale guy's contract. He's like, if my whale burns to death three times, you owe me a fourth whale. They begin their first official tour in 1871. The combined show is named P.T. Barnum's Great Traveling Museum, Menagerie Caravan, and Hippodrome. Shorten that. Come on, that is not fly in Hollywood. I mean, yeah, I think it was more like more words, more impressive. I don't know. Okay, yeah, back then. Today, it's like it's a three word title or your movie doesn't get made. Right. We have no attention span before they're like, we'll stay here for eight hours. What do you got? (laughs) What do you got? The more words, the better. (laughs) We have nothing to do. We have no no radios. We'll watch a tiger burn alive if that's what you offer us. Truly anything. (laughs) It's that or sweeping with straw brooms. It's like, (laughs) (laughs) man, as described Barnum, Costello and Coop, they have um, a show that was super, it's truly immense. It combines all the elements of museum, the menagerie, which is like the sideshow, variety, performance, a concert hall, and then a circus. It's considered to 
potentially be the greatest show on earth, which subsequently became part of the circus's name. And I think a song in that movie with uh, Hugh Jackman. I haven't seen it, but it does sound like the song, something he would sing about. <laughs> Beautiful voice on that guy. Great hair too. Just a real dreamboat. Yeah, he is. And he's old and he's, and he's still with his wife. We love you anyway. <laughs> Hugh, we're big fans. What a guy. What a guy. So six months they tour, they do great. Um, and they're utilizing the newly completed transcontinental railroad for their travel. So they start in Brooklyn in April and they, they tour through October. They traveled through New York, New Jersey, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Vermont, Maine, and then they end up back in New York. Coop contracts, uh, contacts uh, the railroads to partner up for advertising. So sometimes they'll offer discounted train tickets for riders traveling to the cities where the circus would be set up to entice them to go there. Sometimes circus admission would be discounted to train riders when bought at the station and kind the rail lines would allow Barnum to advertise at the station. So they kind of would have like this collaboration give and take at those train stations. He would just totally utilize a whole wall with like inflated copy and just try to get the crowds going to the circus. Yeah. This first season, the show was 100 wagons, 245 horses pulling the carriages. Sometimes visitors would travel up to 75 miles to go to the show. I mean, yeah, they really didn't have anything going on. Right. In Albany, there was a show and it's reported that people chartered a steamboat to get to the show in their town. A whole steamboat? Boy, what a way to travel. So that season, they profited uh, half a million dollars. Jesus. Which is, at such a large production, I mean, think of all of that. All of that, those horses in the wagons. And I'm sure, of course, the performers got zilch. Um, so Barnum sees the potential for more. He knows that he could take the show even farther. So uh, as mentioned, the Transcontinental was stretched and, and had doubled at this point, covering 50,000 miles of, of track. So 1872, at their following season, W.C. Coop and Barnum, they're laying out the season's route. And they realized that all this expansion of rail could really be- benefit them if they utilize it. They And they could reach nationally. So they have to customize everything. Coop bugs the railroads and gets an official deal using their railways and, and their own route on the rails. And then they start the process of how to load their cars, their cargo on the train. And Coop realizes that they... Yeah, how do you get the whales on that train? I know, right? So I they, mean, he got it in a house, so clearly there's a way. They make custom cars so each and custom pulley systems to load and unload the train cars so the train cars are just custom made for what they need so they have custom box cars for the animals and custom flat cars for the wagons and the carriages just like the very beginning of indiana jones 3 just like it yes no um and sleep cars for the performers and the crew everything was super custom so they basically had their own complete train the entire circus yeah they like like They made their train cars, yeah, so that it would suit what they needed to hold. He must have had so much money at this point. There's no way you can do this without just, like, boatloads. They're profiting a half a million dollars? That's insane. Yeah, in that time, that's a billion dollars. In now time. (laughs) In now time. I am an inflation mathematician. (laughs) It is accurate. I believe you. 1872, uh, in April, they kick off that second season. Good. The... Name of the circus is P.T. Barnum's Great Traveling Exposition and World's Fair. Better name. With this newly expanded route on the rails. Yeah, shorter, briefer. They're taking your notes. So this takes them through New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware in just the first month. So they're they're super expanded. Very active. Yeah. They visit 17 states, stop at numerous cities in each state, and beefing up their route significantly. They return back to New York in November, and then they took a short break in mid-November. November 18th, 
PT purchases the Hippotheatron, which is located, uh, which it's a venue. Okay. I hoped it was a hippo robot. I know, right? (laughs) I mean, I knew my chances were slim, but. That would have been very cool. Behold, the Hippotheatron, (laughs) made out of whale bones and hippo leather. So this is located on 14th Street in Manhattan near Union Square. It's At that point, it's one of the last permanent circus buildings. Yeah, because of fires. Because of these anonymous fires because who knows god works in mysterious ways he must hate animals these poor firemen are like really like yeah, can you, yeah. can you they're stop? like um hey the government can you stop giving <laughs> helping this guy out stop giving him money for his crimes and they're like eh, it's never him he's never the one who calls him in it's always Wee herman <laughs> so um, this hippotheatron is now their winter quarters and winter quarters is basically where circuses land uh, off season. So you store all your, your equipment and animals. If, if that's what you have, circuses still have these and have forever. So the hippotheatron serves as their winter quarters and they have a couple of winter performances during this off season just during over the holidays. The circus has some steam. They're getting bigger. They're expanding now they're hiring lawyers, and now they're dealing with written contracts, not just handshakes. Oh, boy. And, it, and it's becoming a big business, an actual big business, and now it's like an entertainment enterprise. So the second season, the show grosses a million dollars. Wow. Is that a year? Yeah, that's one year later. So the first season was 0.5 million. The second's a million. Huh. They're just doubling every year. Yeah. And the addition of the real travel was obviously a huge factor versus traveling by wagon and caravans. Of course. I mean, you can't beat a chooch. <laughs> you can't beat a chooch with a stick. You can't. That, you know? that was the slogan of the train at the time. It's like, you could take a horse, you could take a bike, but you can't beat a chooch. Get on board. Chooch, chooch. So there, they've landed at their winter quarters. They're scheduled to do a couple of performances, and they're at this hippotheatron. The circus, you know, is stored there. But December twenty fourth, uh, a fire breaks out at the hippotheatron winter quarters <gasps> and destroys almost most everything: costumes, instruments, and almost the whole menagerie, which is almost all the animals. This is so fucking ridiculous. And, and I really would love to know if this idiot is collecting insurance money on every single one. Because four fires? <laughs> like, what are you doing? If this is an accident, like, how the fuck? Like, I feel like most people don't start one house fire in their whole lives. This idiot did four yeah. in four different places. The amount of animals that must die in these places and not to mention the travesty of destroying a wonderful place named the what was it Hi- Hippo hippotheatron the, yeah the hippotheatron it, oh my god <laughs> yeah that is only, so crazy only two elephants and a camel survived oh no! well of course the camel did it's used to high heat and the elephants are just running out spraying water over the backs like come on come on <laughs> meanwhile the turtles popped like popcorn oh popcorn turtles although popcorn turtles good name for a snack sounds like with caramel on them mm, oh it could be good <laughs> it's sad but good popcorn turtles Catherine says no but I she think hates it, it. well she's very pro turtle <laughs> we've had this debate so there's an article in a local paper that estimates that there was a million dollars in damages but which is basically what they made that season. So I don't know. He, yeah, but I'm sure they, it, as long as he signed the right I mean, contract, yeah. he gets two million. Which is back. you get all your money back. Don't worry. You, you get all your money back. You know how you were gonna pay all those people and the people who handled the animals. You can't because they're dead. <laughs> yeah, right. 
So, of course, Barnum doesn't care, right? He's used to fires at this point. No, this is fourth rodeo. Fire Schmeyers, if it's not a museum, it's fires fine. Fires don't stop <laughs> me, babe. I got a guy who's got camels. I got a whale guy. I got a mummy guy. Like, we're going to be fine. Well, W.C. Coop is just, like, bummed. Yeah. Because this is, like, they're, like, making money, doing the thing. And now he's like, fuck, dude. Yeah, he has a human response to this. Because all the, the costumes and the animals mm-hmm. destroyed, right? The tents. Oh, this is what I thought was interesting, and you will, too. The tents, the wagons, the draft horses, those are all spared. Those are all fine. Huh. They're damaged, but they're okay. So the things you need to keep moving on. Right. And that's what I was like, that's interesting. You just need to hire new talent and you're fine. Right. Yeah. So, and Barnum says to W.C. Coop, he's like, just put a little electricity in your blood and we'll beat the world. He's just like, hey man, get back on the bike. Just drink some fucking Gatorade and we'll be fine. Yeah. That's basically what he's saying. Yikes. Get your electrolytes on. Turn that frown upside down. That we'll make twice as much money next year. Plus, um, he has money. He has capital. He's got... Oh, yeah. Dude has fucking three houses at this point, right? So he's fine. He's committed insurance fraud <laughs> four times. In addition to making half a million dollars, then a million dollars, and then probably two million this next year. That idiot's got a McMansion. Like, he's owned four buildings. Yeah. Like, he's... He's, he's fine. such a supervillain. So that happens, what... Uh, Christmas Eve. Very poetic. I know, right? So what a shitty Christmas. His Christmas present is a brand new circus and some money from who knows. (laughs) Here's your million dollar insurance (laughs) suit. (laughs) So January 1873, barely two weeks into the new year, Barnum gets a new shipment of animals in the Manhattan Harbor. Oh, would you look at that? A replacement to his damaged menagerie that was lost in the fire. Right on time. Yeah, he doesn't wait long, and he definitely knows who to call to get these exotic animals. Clearly he's got an animal guy, which, before the internet, how the fuck did you find an exotic animal guy? So he has a connect to restore this ruined animal menagerie. Uh, And who is this guy, right? Yeah, I want to know. This uh, German dealer, Hagenbeck, was the guy, the go-to guy for sourcing these exotic animals for circuses in in America. And of course, this is who Barnum goes to when he needs to rebuild his menagerie. Hagenbeck, he's got those good cheap parrots. You know the kind, the colorful ones. He would deliver these animals cash on delivery, not up front. So you don't have to pay him to go get him wow you would pay him once you got them once they arrive to you then you pay him and you could just write him a letter i didn't get the 50 sloths i asked for so i (laughs) i guess i can't pay for those i'll pay you for the one elephant that i got not the six it's like there's a trust system i think you would get whatever you would get but you would just pay for i mean i Here's just a bundle of animals. I give you what I got. I'm sure there's a wish list <laughs> of sorts, <laughs> an Amazon wish list of animals. So he would link up with European agents to capture these animals. I'm sure shitty people, poachers people, yeah. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. so these guys that he would link up with would camp out in the bush. They would yeah. send local men out to hunt. In terrible ways, of course. Because those people were probably too dumb to know where they were in the terrain, Right. Yep. These men would hunt for a few months. In Barnum's case, it was a rush order. I don't know. (laughs) So they would acquire a large menagerie of animals and they would head back to the coast. They would travel by ship to Suez, rail to Alexandria, ship across the Mediterranean, and then rail back to Hamburg, Germany, where Hagenbeck is. That's like every order is like a Noah's Ark of fucking animals going across to America, which also... 
who the people, I mean, all these people who are selling inside these animals, probably bad people, but can you imagine the like boat ride and how many days that is and how many times you have to keep these animals like okay and not killing each other uh, not dying also like on their own like this is just the movie the life of pi for days and days and days (laughs) and then they sell the tiger they befriend that's so sad so they would connect with hagenbeck in germany and then hagenbeck would travel with the animals by boat to the new york harbor in this case fun fact about hagenbeck his cousin started hagen <laughs> And Hagenbeck was the guy who was like, your vanilla's okay. Try French and also coffee flavor. And he's like, no one would want cold coffee. But boy, was he wrong. He sure was. It's the best hagen flavor to date. It really is. So they would only really hunt babies because it was too dangerous yeah. to hunt the large animals. Plus when you get them as a baby, then they think you that you're their parent and they befriend you. Well. I guess. <laughs> and the Disney version, sure. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But even that was super dangerous. There's a, a story of uh, one instance where 40 adults were killed acquiring four, four baby rhinos. Wow. So just people would just die. Just like. I mean, a baby rhino still has a big ass horn, I guess. Could you imagine getting a baby rhino from a mama rhino? Like. I mean, it could just run you the fuck over. You're trampled in seconds. No shit. I mean, hippos too. Low-key, my my cousin like studies animals, and um, apparently hippos are the most dangerous motherfuckers in Africa. Like, they're way more dangerous than most animals. They're aggressive. Super aggressive. I mean, mean, you've seen the videos of them crunching a watermelon in one bite. Imagine that's a human head. (laughs) Oh my god, that's so scary. So, they arrive in the Manhattan Harbor in January... Uh, and he makes this delivery to Barnum. And in the delivery, there's a double-horned black rhinoceros. Ooh, double horn. I'm pretty sure those are extinct. Uh, <laughs> a sale for twice the price. Four large African lions, six Bengal tigers, a pair of leopards. Jesus. They got all this on Rush? These are the primo animals. I know, right? And according to New York Times at the time, a wilderness of monkeys. A wilderness? Is that just like a, a group of monkeys, like a congress of owls or a murder of crows? It's a wilderness <laughs> yeah, of monkeys? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Or is that the folksy way of saying, a bunch? Although I feel like, of course, a lot of people would die. Like Even a baby chimp can rip a face off. Like, they're so strong. But they have to be taught that, right? Don't they? they? I mean, their parents <laughs> are like, if a human comes at you, go to the face. They love their face. <laughs> they really cherish, you know, smelling and tasting. They really do. It's very important to them. Those idiots. <laughs> but what's so interesting is Hagenbeck would, if the animal died on the way over, he would replace it. What a businessman. I mean, horrible human being. But God, for PT's like purposes, this guy's a dreamboat. <sighs> it's insane. It's insane. And it's weird. It sucks because at the time, people going to see these animals... They had never seen this of course. type of animal before. So well, they were just like, fucking, fucking cool. They weren't like, poor yeah. animal. They, it needs to be in the wild. They were just like, animals. They're like, is that a wilderness of monkeys? <laughs> yeah, they're just like, I've never seen a in wilderness. In my wildest dreams, I wouldn't think. I didn't think I'd see one monk, in let alone a wilderness. In my wilderness of dreams, even. <laughs> um, so PT has this brand new menagerie. And W.C. Coop stays the course with P.T.'s encouragement, and he has 150 wagons repaired, redecorated, and to prep for this revitalized circus after this devastation of the December fire. He orders a dozen new tents, including a super big, big top that Coop claims could seat 13,000 people. So this tent's so big that it's not round, it's oval. That's a big tent. The shape results in people getting out of their seats to get a better view because it's 
oval, right? So you can't yeah. see the other side. Dan Costello, the other partner, chimes in and he's like, why don't we do two rings? Mm-hmm. You know, because they only have one at the time. Yeah. So that seems to do the trick at this point. So that's a, an introduction of two rings. Would you say it's accurate to measure a circus by ring? That's a one ring circus, medium level circus. Two ring circus, kind of a big circus. Yeah, well, yeah, I would. As far as like size, for sure. Yeah. Okay. Because I'm learning. Yeah, I mean, unless in this case they're to have like multiple tents, but as far as the yeah. the main tent, if it has multiple rings, then yes. Okay. As a viewer, a, <laughs> one ring is fine for me personally, but whatever. <laughs> Those showboats with their two rings, fuck them. I'm a one ring kind of gal, you know. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. They begin to advertise with that iconic tagline, "Greatest Show on Earth." They hire a 22 person advertising department. And they start introducing, and this is like the first time in circus history that these three sheet lithograph posters that are seven feet tall, so they'll like cover a whole building side. Whoa, it's tall as a tree. Some trees, that's right. Yeah, some trees, yes. <laughs> 1873 is their third season. They hit the road in April with all their new gear, their wagons, their tents, and their new menagerie of animals. Mm-hmm. Fresh from Germany. And the season's titled PT's Great Traveling Exposition and World's Fair. They went the other way with that title. Season two had the good title. Yeah, season. everybody likes season two the best. Anyways. It's a good title. Um, so they start in Brooklyn. They finish the season in October, landing in uh, a new winter quarters in Manhattan. Prediction, there will be a Christmas fire. <laughs> Please keep going. Everybody loves a Christmas fire. <laughs> of course. You know, it was a Christmas fire that stopped World War II, and the Germans walked over into the Americans and said, well, happy Christmas fire, and they shook hands and had a nice night. <laughs> That's a beautiful story. Is that real? Mm-hmm, I want. It, mm-hmm. I want it to be. Every word. A trip to the circus would uh, last hours. Of course. There's the sideshow tent, the menagerie tent, the history museum and exhibits with the relics, the informative entertainment, of course. Infomercial tent. <laughs> um, and finally, the the main circus big top where you could view all the acts performing in the both rings. And there's three performances a day. So you you have your choice of any of those three or all three. Some would go to all three. Sure, if you made a quarters. And the show would be full of aerialists, acrobats, equestrian acts, the strong men. Mm-hmm. One of the acts was this crowd-pleasing performance, the man with the iron jaw, and he would lift a 40-gallon gallon barrel with his teeth. What? I mean, I... You know, that is insane, and it feels like how did his teeth not shatter, but I'm pretty sure there's, like, a guy who, like, pulled a plane with his dick or something, you know? <laughs> so, like, crazy things have happened. I'm pretty, there's something like that. That's the same. It's the same thing. <laughs> they could, I mean, I don't know how they done so it. So, the sideshow uh, became one huge aspect of Barnum's circus. It was a defining feature, and it set it apart uh, and above all circuses and all of the circuses, yeah. you know, had to follow suit because there was a bunch of smaller circuses seeing the success of Barnum Circus and and kind of being like this. We can do this, too. It's like we got one bear. We can get more. <laughs> but, but truly, you're right. There's a guy in Germany who just ha- seems to have a lot. Yeah, they would be like dog. I mean, any animal acts, they would just have like a couple shows. And just do it on a smaller level. But he was such an inspiration for local people that wanted to do the same, you know. They had to follow suit with the sideshow, even though, I mean, the sideshow as a whole was just so full of exploitation, inflated exoticism, and racialization. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly we know better now, but... We understand now that you only become that rich by exploiting people. No shit. In such a shit, shit way. (laughs) It's obviously acknowledged by historians, but... 
Also, some historians will argue that these sideshow performers were also given a chance to utilize the situation and move upwardly in society and uh, where support for those with a disability or medical oddities, as they were perceived at the time, may not have been available for them. So, for example... I suppose that's kind of true, but it's also kind of like the argument that like the do- like the wrestling industry is fine because The Rock and John Cena have careers. Right. Meanwhile, a million other idiots have their bones broken right. every day with no health insurance. The historians use the example of Anne Leak. She was an armless woman and she performed domestic tasks with her feet. So she would sew. She would sign cards for people. She sewed with her feet? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I'd pick up a cord just to see that. Like the dexterity, I can. I mean, look, I can pick up a pencil with my toes. Okay, I'm not. I'm not a chump. But like to sew, that's such a fine little. De- I mean, granted, we don't know if she could sew well, but I'm assuming she would make a whole doily set. I mean, I'm sure she did. She had to. She had to do most everything. She was armless, right? Yeah, and the balance she must have. So, uh, and domestic tasks. I'm sure she was, like, cooking and stuff, you know. I mean, she had to have reached high plates while, like, standings. I'm imagining, like, full-on side splits oh, pulling up a cabinet with a big toe. Like, that's <laughs> well, impressive. Well, I hope they give her a step ladder because that's bullshit. <laughs> yes, I hope so, too. She did this all, like, on a slightly elevated stage. So you'd walk into the tent, mm-hmm. and then she's kind of, like, up so you have a good view of what she's doing. Historians argue this gave her an opportunity to make money and a good living, whereas, yeah. you know, at that time... She would not be afforded that no. at all otherwise because people are people are trash. And, and that is good. Know. But I, I guess also 50 animals wouldn't have been burned alive, you know. <laughs> like, oh, also so that. there's trade off pros and cons. One example of this well wage that Barnum sideshow workers made can be seen with this performer, Myrtle Corbin. She had a uh, Depegis twin. I'm saying that wrong. Depegis? But basically... Depegis, maybe, but basically, like she had uh, a uh, not fully formed twin coming out of her torso. Oh, it was never fully formed in the womb. She had two sets of legs. Whoa! So a fully formed lower body coming from her belly button. Does that make sense? She was a centaur, is what you're telling me. <laughs> no, that's a horse, and a <laughs> right. Well, no, but the but she's got four legs. She has four legs, right? And she, but she has a one yeah. torso, one head, two like two arms. That's a centaur to me, baby. <laughs> and she, and so she was advertised as the four-legged woman, which she was. Uh, and she started yeah. when she was thirteen years old. She earned more than four hundred and fifty a week, which is like with inflation, eleven thousand a week. That's good in that time. Yeah, she. Yeah. Fun, okay, so, good for her. She's so interesting, and I want to talk about her more in another episode, but. She so she had two sets of legs. Also, during her travels, she got married when she was nineteen. She got pregnant. She had five kids. So uh, she was studied in medical journals across the country because you know obviously that's somewhat interesting. But not only did she just have two sets of legs, but she had two sets of internal and external sexual organs. Whoa! So when she had when she gave birth, she gave birth out of both sets of legs so twins came out of both not twins but she like one kid came out of one side one kid came out of another side because you know maybe her husband went on one one side and then another well we had a kid from this set of legs we got a kid from this (laughs) set of legs to round it out Surprised they stopped at five, and even six would have been. Well, I oh mean, well, their business. <laughs> it's their business. Their body's their choice. It's not so, for me you know, to ask. It's not for me to say. <laughs> um, so the show's growing. They've hired advertising 
companies. They're plastering these giant posters in all the cities that they're visiting. And the towns are saturated with people coming to see the circus. Sometimes people will travel a day early just to make sure they got a ticket. Prior to Barnum uh, taking over just the circus industry, the circus as a whole is perceived as immoral, ungodly, kind of because of the scantily clad costumes, the rouse about lifestyle. But now... Barnum was receiving commending reviews. It's funny that people are finally like, this is bad, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, of course, right? One reviewer is saying, there's nothing in the show to offend the most refined modesty, meaning it's a tasteful show. The circus historically is known to hire criminal types, people on the run, thus being a hotbed for pickpockets and lowlifes. But for Barnum Circus, he banned drinking on the lot. He hired detectives from from the Pinkertons as extra security. And this all made a large impact on its perception as being all the more family and community friendly. And then he went for an extra, extra layer, got testimony from celebrities and clergy to ensure that the show was something wholesome and good for kids and not just adults. Celebrity and clergy? I mean, well, we gotta see it. Famous people and the priests love it. Like Famous people and your local pastor. <laughs> give this a thumbs up. Yeah, he just wants to make sure, like... Kids are going to go. This is for kids. Families, you know. This is for kids. We got peanuts. <laughs> right. We got candy. We have tortured animals and <laughs> yeah. peanuts. Bring your kids. It's a good ad. So at the end of that season, the show grosses uh, 1.5 million. He's grown by 0.5 mil every year. Yeah, he's killing it. So in just three years, with the aid of his partners, of course, they transform the business of circus, how it travels, how it advertises, how it operates, how it performs, everything has been redefined at this point. With just three years and four fires, they've transformed the circus industry. <laughs> and a hundred animals died. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, God. So Barnum's nearing the end of this third season. He's reeling with the show's growth and the successful climb. And he lands the show in their new winter quarters at the Manhattan Hippodrome, where they closed out the season with their last show, November 15th. I thought the Hippodome burned down. Well, that's the Hippotheatron. Manhattan's Hippodrome actually is Madison Square Garden. It's uh, it's Madison Square Garden in, before it's become that. <laughs> the first name of Madison Square Garden is the Hippodrome. Isn't oh, that weird? God. So it's like 1871. It's um, a railroad depot. And then that railroad depot moves. Mm-hmm. And then it's vacant in 1874. And then he leases it and makes it this hippodrome for two years for his winter quarters and shows. And then it becomes this other thing for two years. And then it becomes Madison Square Garden, which is very strange. Yeah, what person stepped in and was like, this staple of New York cannot be named the Hippodome. We got to think of something else. They're like, this place is going to burn down. We got to get you out of here. It's cursed. We can't. No building with Hippo in the title lasts more than a year. So the season ends last show on November 15th. That place doesn't burn down. Thank God. Surprise. (laughs) <laughs> surprise yeah, what a twist ending barnum continues to travel and he heads over maybe to do some more business but he heads over to germany like right after the season closes i mean his good friend hagen does is there and then barnum's wife of 45 years charity she's still at home in connecticut and she passes away four days later Aww. in their third family home called waldemir he just names his houses after like whatever fantasy yeah. locations yeah, so, yeah, weird. It's like... so weird yeah my second house is named gondor Um, so she's said to towards the later years of their marriage was often ailing 
And then November 19th, she succumbed to heart failure while he was away traveling. She died of a broken heart because he ran away to Probably. Since he's never home. Always out exploiting. What can you do? Boys will be boys after all. Boys will be exploiting. <laughs> boys will be exploiting insurance fraud. <laughs> he finds out this news and is devastated. Their four daughters are, of course, devastated. But stricken with grief, he just remains in Europe. While he's in Europe, he goes to visit a dear friend, John Fish, who is in England. Inventor of fish. <laughs> of fish. Do not fish. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So never one to remain down in the dumps, you know. He's easy to, to let it roll off his shoulders. And of course. I mean, he's, he's not adverse to tra- uh, tragedy. No, no, he loves it. Um, during his visit, he becomes reacquainted with John Fish's daughter, Nancy Fish. <laughs> Na- Nancy's 40 years Barnum's Jr., <laughs> Uh, gross, but also this just sounds like a made-up person. It's like, uh, uh, yeah, I got a girlfriend. What's her name? Uh, Nancy, Nancy Fish. Fish. <laughs> Checks out. Yep, she sounds real. Um, so the two marry on February 14th, 1874 in London. Mm-hmm. Fish day. Uh, yeah, fish daddy. Barely 13 weeks after his first wife, Charity, dies of heart failure. You know, it... Yeah, yeah, he must have loved her a lot. Yeah, so he's, Barnum's 63, Nancy's 22. Of course. Yeah, chill, very chill. Taylor's old as time. Yeah, Barnum returns to the States without his new wife, probably so he doesn't look like a huge prick, because his, <laughs> yeah, his wife yeah. just died. <laughs> to hide his jackassery, Sorry. he's like, you stay in Germany. Um, but then in September uh, 1874, she comes over, and then the two have a public ceremony in New York. So he owns it. He's like, whatever. I'm an old idiot who loves young women. Who cares if your <laughs> wife dies? He, they, this guy, he just sounds like if Gil and George Faison of Oh Hello were successful, like, uh, scammers. Oh, man. So all this distraction and life change, it results in a shortened season for P.T. the following season. So, however, P.T. Coop yeah. and... Cast- still makes $2 million right. or something, I'm sure. Coop and Costello and PT, they still hold shows at the the home, the Great Roman Hippodrome, which is at Madison Square Garden in the future. Yeah. At the time, the Great Roman Hippodrome. <laughs> sure, sure. We all know it. We all love it. Yeah. Um, it's mostly a theater show, though, at the Hippodrome, and it's just a stationary theater. And the seating capacity is uh, a little over 5,000. The shows ran daily, and they ran through uh, April to August, and then they had a couple touring dates from August to October, um, but only like a few choice big cities, so Boston, Philly, Pittsburgh, Baltimore, and Cincinnati. Just the big wigs. So it was just shortened, because, you know, he was he was married and in love and distracted and whatever. So yeah. uh, then 1875, Barnum runs and is elected for mayor of Bridgeport, Connecticut. What? I know. <laughs> what? He has what? He, he has three homes there, and he's just like, why oh not? I got a young wife, and why not? So he serves I one. I got a young wife. Might as well rule over people. Yeah. So he serves a year term, and he's not a quiet mayor. Nope. He's very outspoken. He protests against the city saloons. He pushed for prisoners to have work, which is... I mean, that's good. Yeah, and he strived to modernize the city's utilities. So that's good. So despite his age... Yeah, he's like, boilers are a menace. <laughs> we need to fix those boilers. Cause... We need to fix those boilers now that I've already extorted it to as much as I could. <laughs> yeah, this guy Pee Wee Herman I know has a lot of problems. Yeah, this guy John H. <laughs> Benjamin keeps calling in and oh man. Uh, so despite his age, he was actually a very modern mayor. And so at this juncture, you know, America's moving swiftly through the Industrial Revolution 
Barnum's successful and content where he's at with his circus, but this is where we will meet James Bailey. <gasps> he is quickly utilizing the innovations that are coming with the Industrial Revolution, and he's pushing his circus to the forefront, quickly making a name for himself in the circus industry. He was put to work and joining the circus uh, business at the age of 13. Ooh, even younger than PT. Yeah, he was orphaned at a young age at eight, and he like left his abusive sister. Yeah. And then he joined the circus with this mentor of his. And then by 22, he was managing his own circus on the way to owning it. Good for him. So he was like co-partnership with this gentleman, Cooper. And so at 22, he was running Bailey and Cooper Co. Circus, roughly the same time that Coop and Costello partnered up with Barnum. So it's like a weird timeline that they kind of coincide. So now we have rival big circuses. This is where the circus gang narrative is going to come in, I hope. They don't know the impact that they'll have on each other's future. And they also have no idea that soon these names will merge in just a few short years and become the biggest names in circus. Oh, boy. And maybe the most well-known American circus spanning this past century. Dun, dun, dun. Wow. So that is... The first part of P.T. Barnum's rise, the rise of Barnum. Jeez <laughs> Louise, what a rise it was. Episode one, the rise of Barnum. The rise of Barnum. That's actually what I titled it. Oh, look at that. Great minds think alike. It was quite a rise. Seriously, that is, that is goddamn ridiculous. I can't believe how much bullshit he gets away with and keeps getting away with. Um, so we will revisit in the next episode the merge of Barnum and Bailey. Oh, boy. So so stay tuned for that. I can't wait to see what these opposing giants, how they feel towards each other and what the tensions they create and, of course, how they release them. Oh, yes. How <laughs> they release mm -hmm. their tensions. Mm -hmm. Yes, I can't wait either. We got to know. That's a, that's a new fact. I know. <laughs> All right. So those will be next episode. Oh, boy. So stay cool, circus people. Check your boilers. For God's sake, check your boilers. Check your boilers and your insurance fraud. <laughs> check your boilers and check your local government's insurance fraud policy. Because if it's light enough, go for it. Hell, you can get away with it at least twice. Maybe four times. And if you want to see any of the images that we talked about during the episode, you can go to our Instagram page. And that's at circus.stories. And if you want to email us fun facts or cool circus stories that you have, you can email us at circusstoriespodcast at gmail. And we will see you next time with more Circus Ridiculous. Ending recording.